0: But tonight I want to talk about uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and uh, we're going to look beginning at where it uh, generally we start and begin, and that is in Acts uh, chapter 2, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter uh, uh, 1, as we talk about Pentecost, uh, it begins, I guess you could really say it's important to go back to... Acts chapter 1 verse 9, and remind that the Bible says that, uh, of course, Jesus has been resurrected. He's still with his disciples. He's yet to ascend to heaven. Uh, And so Acts chapter 1 9, it says that when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he, Jesus, was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And then it goes on to uh, where the, these angels, that the, you know, the disciples are looking up, and they ask him, why are you looking up? Don't you know that in the same manner he was taken from you, in like manner he will return again? But it's important because uh, remember Jesus said uh, in John 16, 7, I don't have that on the screen, but remember that Jesus said uh, that it is to your advantage that I leave. It is to your advantage that, that I go away, i.e. it's to your advantage that I die. Because Jesus said in, in, uh, in uh, John 16, 7, that unless I depart, uh, the Father uh, cannot send the Holy Spirit. Let me, um, I'm paraphrasing it and meant to write it out, but let's look over in your Bibles to John sixteen seven. 7. Um, encourage you to bring your Bibles. You don't bring your Bibles, you're, at a disadvantage for Bible study instead of PowerPoint study. We want to study the Bible. And uh, so we don't always have scriptures on the screen. But Jesus said in in, uh, John 16, 7, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now, I don't think they understood that it was to their advantage, but he said, For if I do not go away, the helper, the paraclete, The Greek word for the helper uh, or the comforter, some versions have. The helper, i.e. the Holy Spirit, if I do not go away, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So here we have in Acts 1-9, Jesus ascending, Jesus departs. And now what is the next uh, significant event is the coming of of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just say when I say coming of the Holy Spirit, we certainly know that you can't chop up and divide the triune Godhead and say, Well, He's here, He's there, you know, because again, God, the nature of God is one, even though God is presented and uh, represented, or not represented, but God is a triune being. We call that the Trinity. But the fulfillment of the coming of the Holy Spirit, we see that fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. We certainly, as we study the Old Testament and, of course, the life of Jesus, the Holy Spirit's very active. Again, you don't have to go any further than Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, how the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the face of of the water. So the Holy Spirit certainly has been here. But the fulfillment that Jesus spoke about, and uh, one scripture, again, just by way of reminder, in John 14... And if you have your Bibles, that'd be a handy thing to use right now. Uh, John 14, and Jesus said, I will ask the Father, in verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper so that he may be with you forever. And the helper is the spirit of truth. We've covered these. Verse 18 of John 14, he said, I will not leave you as orphans. He said, I am coming to you. I'm not going to leave you alone. And so, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you are going to see me. Because I live, you also will live. And so, again, the promise of Jesus sending, but it, Jesus, by his own words, couldn't, the Holy Spirit would not come until Jesus ascended. So, that's where we come now and brings us to what Jesus told his disciples um, to, to wait in Jerusalem, to wait and to uh, remember they wanted to ask him about end times, you know, in Acts chapter 1, are you now going to establish the kingdom for Israel? And Jesus said, you know, to go and to wait. Um, In Acts 1.5, it says, for John baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So it's not wrong necessarily to refer to what happens in Acts chapter 2 as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Bible doesn't call it that, we refer to it as that because of what Jesus said there in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, but it doesn't specifically call it that. We've identified it with that because Acts chapter 2 identifies it with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So, what uh, happened at Pentecost was exactly what Jesus had promised, what Jesus had predicted. All right? So, um, Acts chapter uh, 2, uh, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and we'll. We'll look at that. You can kind of probably stay there in Acts, uh, and uh, most of the scriptures we'll look at tonight are going to be in the book of Acts. But Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 and uh, read uh, another in just a little bit. But here is the fulfillment of what Jesus had promised of the coming of the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now you know they are the disciples, and uh, they are in the uh, and others are in the upper room. Some people believe that this is the same room where the last supper that they had the last supper that that was the same room uh, was their meeting place. So now they're all together in one place. Verse two. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a mighty Rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided or diverse uh, or divided tongues, as of fire, uh, and one sat upon each of them. So there was this uh, visible manifestation that appeared like like fire. Uh, upon them. And then it says in verse four, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, even though there's two different words when it talks about tongues, there's the word here that is, as we'll see here in the uh, fulfillment, is the word uh, dialectos, where we get the word dialects. That's actually speaking about Known languages, but then in uh, Paul uses tongues, a different word for tongues, to speak of a different type that we'll talk about glossolalia. But here it is identifying it as a recognized known language. Now, this was the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was one of those big main festivals. Pentecost, Penta uh, came 50 days after Passover, it was the harvest of first fruits. And so there was a significant amount of Jews from all over uh, the, the, I say world, but the known uh, world at that time that were Jewish. That was one of those festivals that they were the uh, males like Passover to return back to Jerusalem and celebrate the feast of Passover. So it says in verse 5, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, From every nation under heaven. Now, don't let that kind of slide by you because this is an international uh, gathering of Jews in Jerusalem during the Feast of Pentecost. And as we'll see in a little bit, that's significant relating to the manifestation of the gift of the Holy Spirit that is going to take place. So here they are in the upper room. Uh, they're praying, they're waiting, they're in one accord. There's a unity. I think that speaks of that being in one place and one accord. And uh, here they are waiting, and there's this violent, um, this moving uh, wind that's occurring in the whole house uh, that the, uh, as we saw kind of in the Old Testament, many places where the Holy Spirit came upon suddenly. Uh, individuals, and as we'll see here, that this promise of the Holy Spirit is different than the Old Testament. The difference in the Old Testament, that it was selective and usually upon individuals for uh, specific tasks, sometimes for specific ministry uh, jobs or moments in time, whether it's a Samson or different individuals. But as we'll see here, this fulfillment is a fulfillment of the prophet Joel that Paul, or rather Peter, talks about. And this is a, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And all of them, the Bible says in Acts 2, that they all began to speak in tongues. Um, again, don't get too worked up in figuring out what that is. It just, Again, there was a manifestation that affected it, that affected their, their, their voice, their language. Uh, And so we'll see a little bit of that pattern throughout the book of Acts. Remember, too, who also is in that upper room is uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary's in that room. She's a part of that group. And as we know, the 120 now uh, has grown a little bit. So we have a significant group in this upper room that the Holy Spirit, in language reminiscent of the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit has fallen upon them. There's a suddenness, but the promise that Jesus gave to them to wait, we now see, is being fulfilled. All right, let's skip down to Acts 2, verse 14. Uh, and you can read above that. There's people from all over the... And there was uh, verse 11 says that they each said, we hear, this is where, again, it affirms the dialects. We hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. So, some, you know, did God give the gift of languages or did he give the gift of hearing? Well, both. I mean, so they're hearing it in their own language, they're speaking in languages that uh, they haven't learned, and it's a, it's a visible manifestation of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So in verse 14, Peter addresses what the crowd is saying, that they're all gotten up there, brought in some kegs of wine or something, and they're all drunk uh, because they're all acting. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're looking for a sophisticated Uh, way that the Holy Spirit moves, sometimes it doesn't work that way. Sometimes the Holy Spirit uh, will manifest himself in some very uh, unusual ways that tends to override even our uh, effort to bring some control to our own own senses or body. And so Peter, verse 14, stood up. I'm not going to read as much as I'm reading now, but this is kind of the foundation here. Peter standing up with the eleven, the other eleven, there's more there, but he stood up in unity with the other disciples and raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and heed my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. And I think that would be about 9 a.m. Now, I've known some people that were already Rockin' and rolling at 9 o'clock, but uh, that's a different story. That wasn't what's going on here, right? But here's what I want you to see. This is important. And I like the fact that, don't miss this, that, the, that Peter, the apostle, links the experience to the Word of God. That's important. And he links this experience to prophetic fulfillment. When he says, this is what was spoken... Of by the prophet Joel. So, under the unction of the Holy Spirit, by the anointing of the Spirit as a, an apostle and, and opening the Word of God, is that uh, Peter says and links that, that, that what the ancient prophet Joel spoke about, we are now seeing fulfillment, okay? Uh, and that's that's significant. So the prophet Joel, and again, i will just read a little few of it. But the verse 17, Joel the prophet, uh, which is over in Joel 2, and it shall come to pass in the last days. Now that's important because uh, I think that set off, if you will, in my opinion, uh, when I say a time clock, I don't, I don't, I just mean. Today, I believe we're in the last of the last days. And I don't know what the last of the last of the last days are. I mean, you know, I know it's heading into 62. I'm in the last of the last, maybe not the last of the last, but I'm getting there in the last days, right? But I think that the way, uh, and I'm hesitant because uh, while I do think it's important to know what's going on in the world and see certainly some significant events or whatever, there still is a part of me that, that just, you know, holds back a little bit because I remember when the Gulf War happened and Iraq and all, and everybody said, oh, this is it. Well, I don't know if anything is going to be it as much as I do think everything are building blocks that are moving us forward to it, okay? Whether it's in our generation or our children, great, whatever it is, that's why if this was the last days, if Peter is attributing what Joel said that the fulfillment, that these are the last days that God says that he will pour out his spirit, and Peter says, uh, here we are now, it's like something now, a page, if you will, in God's redemptive program now, has, has shifted or opened or like a hinge to a door, now we're in a different phase of what happens here in Acts chapter 2. Okay, you with me? So that's why we're belaboring a little bit, because this is significant in God's redemptive purposes and plans, because in Acts chapter 2, I believe we see the birth of the church. We see the birth of the, the church we, um, we see significant events that begin to take place as the Holy Spirit moves, and he says, and it shall come to pass in the last days, and he said, this is it, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Uh, that was different than what he did, the Lord did in the Old Testament. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Prophesy just means to speak forth the word. It can also mean to speak forth praises your young men shall uh, see visions and your old men shall dream dreams and then it it goes on that from there so this was a this was a significant turning point in God's redemptive program that we see here it's the fulfillment of what Jesus said when he said the spirit of truth shall come i will send them and peter immediately gets up and addresses it now what don't miss this and we've mentioned this before is uh, what difference or change do you see in Peter than maybe you saw prior to Acts chapter 2? What personality difference do you see him as he stands up with boldness that we saw maybe another not too long back? What do you see? Control, Control. okay. What what else? Self-control, all right. bolder. Bolder, sure. (laughs) <laughs> maybe a little more, maybe that's the self, Who said self-control? All right? So uh, controlled by the spirit, right? So the, Lord, the spirit has a way of harnessing that. And, uh, and it, again, we won't we won't go through that. but what, but don't miss the, what I said earlier is that how Peter tied this into fulfillment of prophecy in Joel, the prophet Joel. But all through there, Peter references other Old Testament scripture. And I think, again, just a principle there that uh, as we attribute experience uh, in our own life to make sure that we are grounded in Scripture, okay, that I think that's uh, an important principle to have here. One of the things that I find helpful and important is when I think about, uh, by the way, 3,000, there was 3,000 conversions uh, that people were brought in the church. You've heard me say this many times that... uh, Others speculate it could have been double that because typically in that culture, that men were usually the ones that were counted. Women and children uh, weren't always counted. Just but so some estimate it could be as high as five, six, seven, eight thousand people. And then we saw five thousand people that were saved and came in. Uh, we see one of the you know one of the things when we talk about the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about about when we meet back uh, after the first of the year that we talk about the uh, gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, all those things. And certainly when we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, one of the key things that is, uh, is an area that we'll probably get into next week is the evidence of the Holy Spirit. Okay, What is the evidence of the Holy Spirit? Uh, here there's a manifestation of, of languages, of tongues, when we see other manifestation of gifts that we'll look at at another time. But I'd, I would have you, don't miss one manifestation, and that's in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And you can uh, look in your Bible, it says that after uh, those, verse 41, that those who gladly received his word were baptized. That's just one little note here, verse 41, why we believe that baptism, why I believe that uh, uh, believer's baptism is the scriptural way of baptism Um, infants. There's no record of infants ever being baptized in the Bible. But notice that these new converts, uh, when Peter was addressing their becoming becoming saved and becoming a part of the family of God, notice what he says in verse 41. It says, those who gladly received his word were baptized. So there is an acceptance of truth. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is just identifies you as a believer, as a follower of Christ. So those who gladly receive his word. Infants don't, can't gladly receive a new diaper, let alone <laughs> Jesus, right? So, so there must be at some level uh, some cognitive acceptance of the work of Christ applied to my life. So those who gladly received. They were baptized. They were part of. But here's what I want you to see uh, in regards to consider this also a manifestation or fruit of the Holy Spirit is verse 42 of genuine salvation, of genuine work of the Spirit. Verse 42, and they, what did they do? And they, what did it say? Devoted Devoted or continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They were committed to to the work of God, okay? There was a commitment to the work of God. They, were, they continued steadfastly, or they were devoted in the apostles' doctrine to fellowship with one another in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And what I want you to consider also as a manifestation of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is the fruit of genuine conversion. There was real evidence there, and there was also an evidence of unity among the body. Because as we will see later on, the Bible says that there wasn't any need in that early church, that they held all things in common with each other. That if you had a need, whatever I had, you know, I could meet that need. And so sometimes we tend to focus on one particular manifestation as the sign gift. And I think there's a lot more signs to demonstrate the gifting of the Holy Spirit than just tongues, okay? So I just consider that there. So I want you to see not just one, but it's all the above, all the above uh, of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now look over in your Bibles. I said you weren't, we were going to be in Acts, and we will, but uh, look over in John 3 just for a minute here. I want to kind of make a little change here. We'll come back to some things and the uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But in John chapter 3, you know what John chapter 3 is, I hope. If you used to watch football, you at least know one scripture, John 3, 16, with a guy with a... I don't even think they let those guys out there anymore. You used to see them all the time. but um, John 3, of course, you know, this is the Conversation, dialogue with Nicodemus. Nick at night, all right? Nicodemus came to Jesus at night asking him some questions. Nicodemus was a high-level Pharisee, which was the elite law-keeping sect, denomination we might call it, of Jews. You had Pharisees, Sadducees primarily. Uh, Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the Supreme Court Kind of our terminology of the Jews, Israel, in jesus day, they worked under the uh, good graces, if you will, of Rome, but they were allowed to function and carry out various laws. so Nicodemus is a big shot, okay he is he 's a, a well known figure, and he comes to Jesus at night. people speculate was he he didn't want to draw attention to himself coming to Jesus, maybe. Maybe it was the only time he could get access because everybody was so crowded around Jesus. I don't know. But Jesus, uh, as he's talking to him, of course, you know, he says, um, you know, Rabbi, verse 2, you know, we know you're a teacher sent from God. And Jesus right away says that unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. There must be a work of regeneration, all right? But what I want you to look at is in verse 5 is something Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. Of course, Nicodemus wants to try to figure this out logically, like, well, wait a minute, how can I be reborn physically? How can I enter in my mother's womb a second time? Of course, Jesus, we know, is teaching a spiritual truth. But notice something Jesus says about the Holy Spirit, is where I want to mark, is in verse 5, John 3, 5. He said, "...most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit..." He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Verse 8, here we go. Tells us something about the Holy Spirit. The wind blows, and we know the word for the Spirit in Greek is pneuma. You know, we're studying pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, pneuma, uh, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew equivalent is ruach, And even saying that, you can't say it without breath. Ruhak, you know. And so he says the wind, the pneuma, the Holy Spirit, the wind. Again, metaphors. We see a lot of pictures. We saw earlier about baptize you with fire. Now we see a metaphor of wind. All right. So the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. And he draws the metaphor, so is everyone born of the Spirit. So he likens correctly the Holy Spirit to the wind. And what I want you to reason that stood out to me and wrote that down here uh, this afternoon as I was just uh, going through this is one of the things, especially when we study the Holy Spirit and it comes into the gifts of the Spirit, it comes into the baptism of the Spirit. uh, You know, there's probably nothing more... That's been divisive in the church than the discussion regarding the giftings or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, You have uh, groups throughout history that have taken various uh, positions and and views on those things. And we'll probably spend some time a little bit next week and the following week just comparing some of those. But what I want you to see in that last verse is how the Holy Spirit's compared to the wind. He says, look... You hear the wind blow, you hear the sound, but the wind, how do you capture the wind? How do you you mark the pattern of how the wind always works? And I think Jesus is reminding us that the Holy Spirit um, has a will. And the Holy Spirit is going to work and move as the Holy Spirit so directs. And so the way the Holy Spirit might move in one church or one movement at one time or one individual might be completely different than how he does it in another church and a group or an individual. And even in history, as we'll see in the book of Acts, we'll see as we look at various pictures of the work and the, uh, the uh, uh, manifestation of the Spirit in the book of Acts, one thing we do notice very clear is we notice that it's not exactly the same in every situation. But see, we like things in nice, tidy little bow boxes and bows. We like a certain amount of certainty that the Holy Spirit must always work and do it the same way, the same time, in the same manner, and we don't have any room for anybody that might do something a little different. Now, I'm not talking about anything that's outside the bounds of Scripture. Okay, I'm not talking about that kind of craziness. But I found that over time, you know, God has never asked my permission uh, of how he will or will not manifest himself and move in various people's lives or churches at times. He's never consulted my opinion. Has he you? I don't think so, right? And, you know, it's okay to at least accept and say, well, you know what, that's maybe never been my experience, but I'm not going to judge and say that cannot be of God. Because, again, I'm not talking about anything that's outside the boundaries of Scripture. And we've got to make sure that our boundaries are those that God has drawn and not human tradition has drawn. You know, there's a difference, right? And so, keep that in mind as we look at uh, what uh, I want you to kind of Step back, instead of focusing just on Acts 2 of the day of Pentecost, I want you to maybe see something that you've not noticed before and consider that in Acts, there's actually what I call four Pentecosts in the book of Acts. And I'll let me explain that. Luke, Luke is the author. Here's an easy one. What gospel did Luke write? All right, good, good. Y'all are, y'all are brilliant. Did you get that right? Did you say John? All right. Um. Uh, Luke, well, he also wrote the actions of the Holy Spirit, the acts of Jesus Christ, the book of Acts, we call it. He is also, as a, compen- as a, as a companion, as a continuation of uh, Luke. Luke was a physician. Luke also, um, primarily, each author uh, has a, just like a human author, when they sit and write a book they have an audience of who they're writing to. And so Luke has an audience, whether it's in the gospel attributed to his name or in Acts, one of the people or groups that is his primary audience are Gentiles. Who are Gentiles? Non-Jews. Good. So they're not Jews, and he is wanting to Right, and Luke, we know, is a companion of the Apostle Paul. He's not one of the twelve. He's a companion of the Apostle Paul, and he is also a physician. And so as you read the Gospel of Luke and Acts, you notice a particular penchant for detail. I like doctors who are detail-minded. Don't you? I don't want somebody saying, eh, that's close enough to him. No, I want precision. I want doctors that cross their T's and dot their I's, especially when it comes to my health or records, right? So Luke uh, is an author who puts out details and things that other gospel writers uh, do not. So he is, he is demonstrating, not that Jews couldn't, didn't read this, but remember in this time and culture... The uh, cultural and philosophical effects of the Greek world, the Gentile world, affected Jew uh, and Gentile alike. Uh, Greek philosophy, the Greek language, was really the universal language of Jesus' day. Now, he spoke Aramaic, that was more of the the common language of of, uh, of where he lived, certainly Hebrew, but that was more of the scholarly language language of the uh, rabbis and the synagogue. Aramaic was more of the common trade language, but, it, but the educated, uh, knowledgeable, the elites, the Romans, whatever, um, Greek was seen as the premier language that was to be known and spoken, okay? And so Luke, wanting to demonstrate and an apologetic, and I don't, when I say apologetic, I'm not saying apologetic like, oh, I'm sorry, apologetic. But we talk about apologetic means to give a defense for. It comes from the Latin word apologia, which, which speaks about giving a defense. He wanted to give a, an apologetic, an apologist. Josh McDowell is an apologist, um, and there are others. And he wanted to give a defense or a credible written historical account that was credible historically, factually, accurately concerning Jesus and the beginning of the church. So if somebody wanted to see a historical record and understand and learn about Jesus and understand what this movement of Christianity is all about, Luke provided a tremendous source For that, okay, it was a credible uh, record of what he was writing, and so one of the things that that is his concern is that he wanted to demonstrate that Jesus isn't just a Jewish Messiah; he is the fulfillment as the Messiah, and that this movement of Christianity and Jesus was not just some offshoot of Judaism. You with me? He wanted to make sure that, that, that Jesus is the demonstrated as the Savior of the world, that he's the promised one that God has sent, yes, through, through the Judaistic, Davidic line, but the fulfillment of Jesus was to be a Savior for all peoples, okay, for all the world, all ethnicities, if you will, okay? And so as he is writing this, he recognizes a big controversy that is front and center in the early church. And one of the big controversies that came up uh, when the church began to expand outside of Jerusalem is they began to expand, and this really got ratcheted up when Paul began to go out on these missionary journeys into non-Jewish territory, is guess who is getting saved? Jews or And so by the time you come to Acts chapter 17, you come to what is called the Jerusalem Council. That means it had reached a certain crescendo of controversy because there were Jews that made claim to be followers of Jesus that were traveling around, sometimes going behind Paul and contradicting what Paul taught and uh, saying, well, don't, you know, Paul's not accurate. Paul's kind of gotten off little bit we need to and what they were telling is is that in order to be a Christian, listen carefully, in order to be a Christian, you really need to be a Jew first and then a Christian. Meaning to be a Christian, whether you're a Gentile or 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 a pagan, most Gentiles were pagans, but you needed to come under Judaism. You need to come under the law that men, men circumcise. You need to keep the feast. You need to keep the dietary laws. You need to keep the Sabbath. You need to be a Jew. Add Jesus. You know, Jesus, we're all for Jesus, they were saying. But you're accepted by God by... we. I'd say we, but they. You're accepted by God not because of the finished work of Jesus, but you're, you're accepted by God by law plus... Jesus. And see, that's where false teaching and religion is always intersected. It's always Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus the Watchtower Society. Jesus plus the Book of Mormon. Jesus plus, hey, let's just put it right here in our backyard. Jesus plus church attendance, tithing, reading my Bible every day, praying every day, all these things I do, help earn and keep me saved. I'm not walking in grace. I'm not dependent and solely um, standing on the finished work of Christ. It's Jesus plus something else. And so one of the controversies that Luke well understood was this this controversy that was a bit of tension between these Gentiles. Listen, Jews, uh, you know, right now you have this fervent... Uh, you know hatred uh, that that children are raised with in in uh, many Islamic countries with such an intense hatred of Jews that from the time they barely can speak they are I mean you, you can look and for yourself you can see coloring books and and childlike books that that they are they are taught. That Jews need to be killed. They're evil, and, and I mean just, and so they're just raised with that type of venom and poison. Well, the Jews listen. They were God's chosen people. They are God's chosen people. But they, and this is always a problem throughout the Old Testament, is they leverage that relationship as though that meant I could do whatever I want, and it became an arrogance and a pride that they say well we're God's people so God will never punish us God will never judge us well have you ever read the old testament a little bit Jeremiah and see how that worked out for them and God see God was always committed to his covenant but that never meant That God would not punish Israel any more than God is is committed to his unconditional covenant in Christ. But that does not mean that you and I can suffer the consequences of willful and deliberate sin and rebellion. And so, here you have these Gentiles now, and they're coming into the church. And this controversy is, wait a minute, do we accept them as saved or do they need to become Jews first before they can become an accepted in the church? It was a big debate. It was a big issue there. One of the things that I believe that Luke is wanting to do here, as he, as he writes, he's not just writing willy-nilly. He's not just writing and just throwing things up in the air. I think like every author, Luke has an intent and a purpose of why he's doing and why he places things uh, throughout Scripture. And one of the things I want you to notice here, besides the Acts chapter 2 of the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit, I want you to notice with this same pattern something that we see in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And So this is a good time to go back to Acts, and I think we'll stay in Acts the whole time. So open your, go back to Acts 1, and notice what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, Verse 8, right before he ascended, he told his disciples, and he told them about waiting. And I want you to see a structure or a pattern here. And he said, but you, but you shall receive power, Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Old Testament language there, come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. Now look at the four places, Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. It's interesting that when you see that, you see that somewhat as a a template. You know what a template is, like a pattern? You see that pattern here, and something that I think Mr. Luke is wanting to teach us about the spread of Christianity, because that's what the book of Acts is all about, is the actions of the Spirit in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that almost becomes a little bit of a template that we can see that Mr. Luke is going to demonstrate for us that if the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was the promise of God, the fulfillment of the words of Jesus that was going to that was going to, remember the Holy Spirit is presented as the sealing that he was going to bring in uh, and graft in his, his church into one body. Well, we see, in a, we see a pattern here, and I want you to notice four outpourings of the Spirit to four groups. And these four groups, as we'll see here, is practically identical to Jews in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. There are individual cases, but I want you to see something here that I think Luke is wanting us to catch here in these four distinct groups that's kind of set up for us in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is Jews, Samaritans, God-fearers, and Gentiles. That's the four groups that are in the early church. We know Jews, Samaritans. Samaritans get their their Jews considered Samaritans half-breeds. Tremendous racial <laughs> prejudice. I mean, that's an understatement between uh, Jews towards Samaritans. You know, when Jesus gave the parable of the story of the good Samaritan, that was an oxymoron. Meaning, first of all, there's no such thing as a good Samaritan. They're all dogs. But you know, who was the hero of the story? The Good Samaritan. Because he was poking at the hypocrisy and the phony religion of the Jews by showing that the Good Samaritan demonstrated godliness. And that was a direct you know, salvo, if you will, against the hypocrisy of the Jews. And then, so Samaritans, and their history goes back. You remember after uh, Solomon died... That his son took over, and the nation of Israel went from a united monarchy under David and Solomon, and then because of rivalries, they split in half and had a civil war. The northern kingdom gets a little confusing. Northern kingdom called Israel, um, and the southern kingdom called Judea, and the Judean capital was Jerusalem. Well, the northern kingdom set up a rival place of worship. God never authorized any other place of worship Except Jerusalem and the temple, but the king, in order for people not to go to Jerusalem and for there to be perhaps a breakdown of the northern kingdom, set up a rival temple, a rival religion, if you will, in Samaria in the north part of Israel. Uh, Samaritans historically were loose; they were they were Jewish in one part. They did not accept the entire Old Testament scriptures. They only accepted the first five books of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, was essentially their scriptures. Uh, God-fearers, that's another group you see uh, in the New Testament. These are Cornelius. We'll look at him in a little bit in Acts chapter 10. God-fearers were individuals who respected the Judaism they uh, held to the, Judaism, uh, the Jewish religion and sense of, of morals and ethics. They admired the Old Testament scriptures, but they were not Jews. They, had, uh, they were not, males were not circumcised. They did not keep necessarily the Sabbath, but they were respectful and admirers of Judaism. And they were referred to as God-fearers. And then the last group is Uh, the Gentiles or the ends of the earth. Notice these four groups, four different Pentecosts, and I wish we had the screen of the scriptures uh, on the screen because I'm afraid we'll get bogged down here, but look at uh, group number one. Of course, that's those in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, all right? In Acts chapter 2, we see, remember the pattern Jews, Samaritans, God-fearers, and Gentiles, this pattern, and we see that God is building one church. He's not building a Jewish church. He's not building a Samaritan church. He's not building a Gentile church. He is building a church that is unified of all people, and Luke's wanting to demonstrate that. So we know group number one, we've talked about that uh, pretty much uh, In detail, look at group number two. Look over in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, and we see another quote unquote Pentecost uh, manifestation of the Holy Spirit with this second group here in Samaria. Acts chapter 8, and let's look at verse number 4. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now, why were they scattered? Because there was great persecution happening in Jerusalem, and they all of a sudden they scattered uh, to uh, get out of Jerusalem and move forward because of the persecution. Uh, Stephen was martyred. Remember Stephen? He was a deacon full of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 7, uh, he was uh, murdered. He was stoned to death. And that's where we see the beginning of uh, Saul, who certainly plays a prominent role at the end of chapter 7. So now we're in chapter 8. Philip, who is also a deacon, he has uh, moved out, uh, out of one to uh, uh, protection of his own life. Uh, remember what they did. They, they were enjoying a nice little comfortable unity there in Jerusalem. But that wasn't what Jesus told them, was it? He told them to go into all the ends of the earth, to go out and... Uh, to preach the gospel. And sometimes, if we don't obey, God will just change circumstances to force you to do what you might not be inclined to do. Right? All right. So, Acts chapter 8, Mr. Philip has now gone out to Samaria. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Okay? Then Philip, verse 5, Acts 8, verse 5, went down to the city of Samaria. Good Jews didn't go through Samaria, they'd, they'd walk extra around to avoid going to Samaria, or going through Samaria. And he went to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. He didn't preach coming back into being a good Jew. He preached Christ to them. Verse 6, And the multitudes of Samaritans with one accord heeded, obeyed the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Let me just point something out. I'll point something out later. This will be important. Philip is a deacon. Okay? He's not an apostle. He's not among the original uh, 12 or 11, you know, if you don't count Judas. And the argument with some is is that only miracles were done through the apostles because they were done to authenticate their apostolic authority. But here... You see a non-apostle, and you see miracles. Verse 6, isn't that what your Bible says? They heard the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Well, that's a problem if you hold to that, that view. And that's a, big, that's a big view in talking about the continuation of Gifts. Verse 7, for unclean spirits, demons, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed. One thing that Samaria was full of was false religion. And and, uh, certainly any false religion, I don't care how moral it is, anything that is false and is not of the true God is demonic inspired, right? Okay. Thank you, Penny. Many... Look at this. Many who were paralyzed and lamed were healed. The implication is that Philip is the instrument that God is using by the Spirit, and there was great joy in that city. Now drop down to verse 14. We're talking about the second Pentecost, if you will. Now again, it wasn't the day of Pentecost. I'm just using and seeing how this pattern of the Spirit is enveloped by this second group. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem, okay, the word got back, they're at Jerusalem, they heard that Samaria had received the word of God. Remember the Samaritans are the broken cousins. They're the estranged. There's links to Judaism, but they're the estranged relatives, if you will. What did they do? They sent Peter and John to them. You see that? Verse 14, they sent the big guys They sent the heavyweights. They didn't send Bartholomew. They didn't send Nathaniel, right? They didn't send Thaddeus. They sent Peter and John, the big guys, with the big badges. All right, I don't know if they had badges. The apostles. And I'll say why. Verse 15, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Spirit, verse 16, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized, water baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, that is Peter and John, and what happened? And they received the Holy Spirit. Here's what I want you to see, the significance of this. Remember, the enemy wants to have a fractured church. By sending Peter and John, the top, laying hands on them, they receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit, just like the Jews in Jerusalem did, thus signifying their incorporation into the full body of Christ. They're no longer estranged. They are now... By the hands of the apostles, and I think, that, again, don't miss the symbolism there, that they are now brought in to the one body that Jesus is building. Jesus said in Matthew 16, upon this rock I will build my what? All right, he's doing that. All right, we can do these real quick. Group number three, okay, a God-fearing Gentile. Okay, We see the Pentecost of the Jews, of the Samaritans. And now we see the Spirit coming upon uh, this God fearing Gentile. And there was a, a whole group of them, but here we see it signified by Cornelius in chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. Look at, uh, let me pull it up real quick. Acts chapter 10. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. He was a Roman, a devout man, notice the language, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God, the Yahweh, the true God, always. Look down at verse uh, 44. And then, of course, this you'd have to read this, but remember this is where Peter gets a vision and sees these non-kosher animals, and the Lord says, take up and eat, and Peter's like, oh, I'm not going to do that. Talking about being under control, he kind of loses it a little bit. But he says, I'm not going to eat that, I'm a good Jew, I would never eat those unclean animals. Gentiles had no problem eating unclean animals, meaning non-kosher animals. And so we see through this vision, and then God speaks to him to go to this man Cornelius, and God speaks to Cornelius also that God's going to bring Peter to him. And verse 44, Peter shares the gospel, and here's what I want you to see, this inclusion now, God's building his church. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking the words, he hadn't gotten to the altar call, the Holy Spirit fell upon them who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed, that's the Jews, they were astonished at this. They were astonished at this, at the conversion of these God-fearing Gentiles, God-fearers. So now we see another group that is now the the third group. Remember what Jesus said in Acts 1-8? Jerusalem... Judea, Samaria, and now these ends of the earth is who we see these Gentiles, this group four in Ephesus in Acts 19. Now again, one thing I am skipping is the Apostle Paul's conversion and the spirit there, but I'm wanting you to see these four groups, just like you saw the identified groups in Acts 2, uh, you saw the Samaritans in Acts 8, you see Cornelius representative of these of these type of Gentiles that were God-fearers. And now in Acts chapter 19, you see this church that the Apostle Paul uh, planted on his third missionary journey, and you see the uh, in Acts chapter 19, let's look at that real quick and we can... And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples. And he said to them, Did you, read, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to, them, said to him, We have not so much even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Paul, into what then were you baptized? We were baptized into John's baptism. That's John the Baptist, meaning a baptism of repentance. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, even John the Baptist spoke of one who will come and will baptize you with the Spirit, with fire. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, here again, verse 6. And when Paul, the apostle, had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and it says they spoke with tongues. And here we see something different. For the first time. Not only do they speak in tongues, but they what? What does it say? They prophesied. So again, the reason I said sometimes we got to realize the Holy Spirit does things differently, if we are to say, as some would say, that the Holy Spirit is the, capital T-H-E, the evidence, the evidence, then we might need to say, well, wait a minute, then you should prophesy because that's the evidence of manifestation they manifested here. But don't get, don't get lost in that. All I want you to see is the Holy Spirit put his seal engrafting in, in Jews, Samaritans. They were no longer part of God's family of promise, you will. Now they're part of God's church. God fears Gentiles, this Roman and other God. It says, Cornelius is all his household was saved. Now they're part of the church. And then we see these Gentiles who have no Jewish connection whatsoever. And we see the same Holy Spirit that came upon Jews, Samaritans, God-fearers. Now the Holy Spirit to the ends of the earth, Acts 1-8. Now the Holy Spirit has encompassed the entire group of God's church. There's not a Gentile church. There's not a Jewish church. There's not a Samaritan church. There's not a black church, not a white church, not a Hispanic church, not a Baptist church, not a Presbyterian church. He prayed in, that, in John 17, Lord, may they be one as we are one. And so here's, here's what I'll close with. Great emphasis, and I get it, and I, I'm not even trifling with this, but I grew up in a Pentecostal environment where there was great emphasis That once you are saved, now you need to tarry. That was the word. Tarry. Wait. Plead for the Holy Spirit to come. I would pray for sometimes people and they would say, I've been a Christian for 12 years and I'm still tarrying and praying for the Holy Spirit. And you see, don't get me wrong. The heart and desire to hunger after God is not wrong. The theology was wrong. It was a misemphasis. The tearing and the waiting that you see, because they would point to the pattern Acts and say, well, see, all these people got the Holy Spirit after they were saved. Now, Cornelius got got the Holy Spirit the moment he was converted. So that messes that up. But they all got the Holy Spirit after they were saved. It had nothing to do was seeing that that is a template and a pattern that once we are saved, now we need to wait for the filling of the Holy Spirit. You can't be saved without the Holy Spirit. The the reason is, is because God was wanting, I think, to show us something bigger that He was doing in His redemptive purpose of building His church, that He was together, bringing together those who were estranged and far off. He was bringing together Jews, Samaritans, God-fearers, and all the Gentiles. What is it? That's Acts 1:8. Go and preach the gospel into all the world. Jesus is a Savior for the whole world. John 3:16. For God so loved the world. Again, that's not an issue about the extent of the cross. It's saying that God is not, He did not send Jesus to be just the Jewish Messiah, He came through the Jews. He was born a Jew. We're indebted to the Jews. We're indebted to the heritage of the Jews. But he's the Savior that will be worshipped by all. And we see that demonstration in what I call these four Pentecosts, if I can use that word in quotes, of God pouring out of spirit, manifesting evidence. Because in some cases, how did they know? How did John, Peter and John know that those Samaritans had received the Holy Spirit? if there wasn't some type of manifestation. I think, again, I have no issue with manifestation. I have no issue with, with tongues and those things. And again, we'll, talk, we'll dig all into that. But I just want you to see Pentecost much broader and a grander purpose that Luke is wanting to show us in Acts than just what happened in Acts 2. There is a grafting and a building of his church, and he's taken all these people that outside and confirming by the Holy Spirit that he has one church, one body with Jesus as the head of that church.